Lena Utrada, and this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. So hi, everyone. We're here today with two of our previous contributors, Kira Jasper and Josh Shimans. So hi, Josh and Kira. Thanks so much for being here today. Hi, thanks for having me back. Hi, yeah. Thanks, Alina. Good to hear you. (laughs) In our virtual world. So yeah, so we're going to be talking about some of the some of the challenges and conversations that come up when we think about techs, uh, when we think about tech in a more global setting. So one of the big one of the big cases that just came up recently um, that that people were following is um, the the reaction of Facebook and Google. Um, to a law that was ultimately passed in Australia um, around um, what essentially would require them to pay news, to pay money essentially when um, news organizations articles were linked and was attempting to sort of quote unquote, even the bargaining power between tech corporations that use a lot of and profit off a lot of the content of news organizations. Whether or not this law actually achieves it is is a, something that we can discuss. Uh, when this law was being discussed, uh, Google threatened to uh, pull out of the country entirely. Um, it ultimately backed down and came to an agreement with the news organizations it was required to by law. Um, but Facebook decided to, um, for a period of time, did not allow Australian users to link to news articles and that um, Facebook users who attempted to post a news article um, would get a, an error alert that said, you, you cannot, I'm sorry, you can't post this. Um, and that wasn't mandated. That was a, re, you know, a reaction that Facebook did to this law. And so there's a lot of headlines about um, Facebook bullying a state, Facebook trying to coerce a government. Um, so what do you guys think? Like, is this an example, is this really an example of, of tech corporations outsized power that they could actually stand down a a government like Australia, or is this a lot of hullabaloo about nothing? Well, I think there's a few different like pieces to that that are, um, important. One is that, uh, they failed, right? So to the extent that that Facebook, you know, that that is what was going on. Facebook was attempting to stand down the Australian uh, elected government. They failed, they lost. Um, So I think that's an important thing to take away. But I also think that it's worth like dwelling on what Facebook's argument was about that uh, law. And essentially Facebook said, this is a bad law that doesn't set out to do what it aims to do. And the problem with that argument, as people said at the time, and you know, basically my view of it is that it doesn't make a distinction between whether or not regulation is like good, you know, whether it achieves what it sets out to achieve efficiently, effectively, you know, fairly, and who gets to decide whether it's good. Um, And Facebook said this is bad regulation. And what everyone else essentially said is, yeah, but that's not your job to decide whether it's good or bad regulation. Um, And my problem with Facebook's, you know, it was partly just an incompetent thing, like its comms were so, they sounded like they were trying to bully the Australian government, which is a, you know, strange thing to be doing. But it's also that they assumed that their view about whether the regulation was good 
was relevant to whether or not they should essentially do what the regulation demanded. And I don't think it is. Um, I think they actually had a point about um, the idea that the effects of the law really were to encourage tech companies to do backroom deals with big media companies, and that this actually would entrench the power of the biggest media companies in Australia, particularly the Murdoch Empire, like the UK. The Murdoch Empire has a you know, stranglehold over Australia, over Australian media, and Facebook said essentially, "We'll just have to do a deal with them, and this is going to entrench their power. It's going to make it harder for smaller news organisations to compete with them." And whether or not that's right, it's just not for Facebook to decide. Um, so in the end, I think it got to the right place. I am nervous about other countries following Australia's lead because I do think that essentially Facebook's point was right. Um, but what sort of comforts me is that in the end. Facebook lost that battle and the Australian government won. Yeah, I think I agree with uh, with Josh's points. But I think what's interesting about their role in this country compared to other places is just how fragmented their approach is. So my my what is curious is that in a law um, regulating their movement or regulating their actions here, is this a unique, I mean, this is a very unique bill, but it's just their reaction to it, I thought was pretty um, different than the ways that they've responded to other attempts for governments to sort of curtail their actions. And what makes me think is what was so unique or about this bill and maybe the ecosystem in Australia that makes them feel like they can uh, challenge the government in this way. Yeah, that is kind of interesting um, because especially we think of Australia kind of sort of as being part of like, you know, their developed um, like industrial, like definitely doesn't have the like powerhouse of the United States, Um, but especially and it's, you know, Facebook is an American company, but we definitely don't think of Australia as a state that you can bully. what what was interesting to me though was the um people's reactions to it where it, it was i mean the headlines were really saying things like facebook is staring down a nation which really fits with previous um kind of coverage of of facebook as you know mark zuckerberg is a king they're a nation state and i mean same with i mean google you know didn't initially had some headlines but then and didn't do it but it was to me, it was sort of like, fine, don't comply with the law. Like, see what happens. Like, the Australian state was not gonna crumble if you couldn't link to news sites. And in fact, one of the really interesting things that came out of it was the number of news sites who found that their traffic did not at all decrease whatsoever when Facebook prevented them from linking. But even when Google, so Google said it would pull out and then it wouldn't run search in Australia. And and I think that would have been that would have been far more disruptive than like Facebook's like you can't post news links. But even then it was sort of like okay, the Australian state isn't going to crumble if you can't Google search. Um people will adopt different things and ultimately right this that might really harm Google. So it was interesting how I thought how people were covering the 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 relative power of of the corporation that that it is true i thought it was true it, it was bringing up an important point about how entrenched the infrastructure was particularly like when uh public servants couldn't 
use like Facebook live tool to reach people. And they found, oh my God, we've been depending on this to communicate with people. But ultimately it seemed like it was a little too soon, right? For it to be such critical infrastructure that they really could stare down the state. A couple of things about that. I think the dependency point is really interesting. Um, and sometimes I think that we get a little bit too relieved when we realize that you know democracy doesn't literally crumble minutes after you know Google pull out of a country or Facebook stop linking news articles because really that's like not the right metric to be thinking about when we're governing these things and thinking about how to regulate them. Um, and it might well be that Facebook and Google are more dependent on news than you know the ecosystem of information you know that a democracy needs is on Facebook and Google. But the right sort of criteria that we should be going for there is like, do Facebook do a good job of, you know, distributing information and, you know, regulating content in ways that support democracy or not? Um, and if they don't, then, you know, what can we do about it? And I think that one of the things that it revealed to me was the different ways that the companies internally structure their decision making around engineering versus policy. So their policy teams are incredibly decentralized, which to Kira's point, is why they sometimes seem to take wildly different rhetorical and you know, strategic approaches to regulation in different jurisdictions. So like, I don't know exactly how Facebook's Australia team works, but I wouldn't be surprised if they you know, have a weekly check-in meeting with Facebook's central policy team, unless there's a crisis, but actually pretty much kind of go about doing their business, engaging with the Australian government separately. Whereas the engineering team, the build, the newsfeed or the integrity system, whatever, will be incredibly centralized and there'll be like a small outpost in um, Australia. And that in part is interesting because to the extent that there is a kind of dependency, it's actually the engineers in very centralized locations that, that wield the power. But to the extent that there's a sort of conversation around it and a you know debate in the newspapers that is not really relevant to the engineering that's going on, that's a really distributed set of conversations that's happening in different location. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So do you think that um, the engineers who were doing this weren't aware of, or like what, what's kind of the ramification of that then? Like That like, even if Facebook do the deals with news organizations in Australia to compensate them for news articles that they link to, the fundamental effects of newsfeed, integrity, Google search, Google's maps, and so on, on the Australian public sphere are being determined thousands of miles away. Um, and, you know, by the people who design all of those systems and the people who set the principles that underpin the design and so on, which I think in the end tells you something about the, the, the way that they structured the law. It's fundamentally about money changing hands rather than like how we set up these things and how that relates to you know Australian democracy and so on. So I think in the end, like it's probably a comment about the nature of the law, but I think you see it come out in public when you get these weirdly sort of strangely different ways of responding to what governments say in different jurisdictions. Yeah. No, I, I take your point, Josh. I think I think it is true, the larger point that right, it it is the responsibility of the Australian government to regulate Facebook, regardless of whether or not they're actually dependent on it. 
But at the same time, I think it did kind of, or the coverage of it seemed to me a little bit hysterical in in the way that they were um, displaying the actual power imbalances. It became obvious, as kind of you said, Australia can and will regulate Facebook however it wants, and the company will acquiesce. So to kind of take a, then another case study, which I then I think brings up kind of another host of issues and kind of reframes some of the things we were talking about. So, you know, in Australia, Facebook was criticized for, quote unquote, defying a government. Um, but in the past few weeks, um, we've seen Facebook criticized for its failure to take action against a government. Um, so in the past few weeks, we've seen a coup d'etat in Myanmar. Um, there have been protests across the country. It's turned deadly. And Facebook did uh, kick off the Myanmar military or ban them from their platform. At the same time, however, this comes after Facebook was heavily, heavily criticized for years and years for essentially doing nothing to stop an ongoing genocide against the Rohingya in Myanmar. Um, and, and people really criticized uh, Facebook and there, were, there was kind of a real reckoning around like how that, that platform um, was used. So then in this situation, it's a little bit different than Australia, right? So we have a, a country or a state or a government that in general we feel are committing human rights abuses who, who are demanding, you know, who are demanding, you know, they, they want to have access to the platform. And then our response is sort of like, okay, well, what is Facebook doing to defy a government and yet uphold human rights, essentially? Um, so does this kind of change the way that like we're thinking about like what Facebook or, or tech corporations obligations are? Is it not just to like acquiesce to the state, but some some sort of other standard? Yeah, my thought on that um, is that I think, as you say, they're really different cases and that in the end, a corporation that has the kind of power that Facebook has and Google have to make some kind of principled distinction between different jurisdictions, countries, and why they act differently in different ways. So in this case, I think we should distinguish between like a state or a government and as, as being the thing that you know unifies the nation states of the world. That's what that's the sense in which Myanmar and Australia are similar. Um, but they're different because Australia is a you know legitimate democracy, liberal democracy. And Myanmar is neither liberal nor a democracy. Um, and I think that, you know, in a way, this is quite a like late 90s, early 2000s view, but that distinction matters. And to me, is a legitimate basis on which Facebook can relate to those two sets of state actors in different ways. Um, and it's kind of an obvious point, but I think it's often confused because it's often assumed that, you know, the problem with that distinction is that it allows Facebook to you know, make arbitrary distinctions between the good and the bad thing that governments do and that it can pick and choose. And I don't think it does, because I don't think it depends on the content of what a government does that Facebook should be judging. It's where does the authority of that government come from? Um, and the authority of the Australian government comes from the Australian people. And so, you know, within certain like very wide bounds, Facebook should do as the Australian government tells it. The authority of the uh, military in Myanmar does not come from the people of Myanmar. And so Facebook has no obligation to do as you know they are told by the 
by that government. Um, and I think it's okay for Facebook to make that distinction. So what do you think, Kira? Do you think it matters, you know, should should American corporate tech corporations acquiesce with liberal democracies, but not authoritarian states? I think it's complicated to the relationship that Facebook has with its people. Um, so if you think about Myanmar, Facebook is the internet. When people get a phone, Facebook is automatically on the, on the phone. They don't need data in order to use it. There's a different version of Facebook. And a lot of the economy functions through Facebook. And so when you think about how the, about this question of dependency, as we talked about in the Australia case study, I think we see dependency so much more in a country like Myanmar and in a lot of countries in Southeast Asia, as maybe we would see in the US or in Australia. And I think that plays a huge role in not only what Facebook's willing to do, but also what the governments are willing to do in order to challenge Facebook's authority. I mean, we already saw within the Myanmar case study that using um, the cloud computing Australia or the Myanmar government took Facebook off for certain hours of the night, but they realized that they couldn't actually ban Facebook altogether because of how dependent the economy was on services that are on Facebook. And so when we sort of think about what Facebook is also willing to do in order to ban um, certain content or people, they also are treading lightly because they realize as uh, Josh said, if they piss off the wrong people, then they're going to get the boot and they benefit a lot from this relationship just as much as the Myanmar people and government do too. So I think that's really important to think about and also in thinking about why they treat certain countries differently. Um, I think Facebook benefits a lot from really authoritarian regimes. I mean, we also think about Vietnam. They have allowed the Vietnamese government to tell them what to do, honestly, in terms of banning activists or regulating certain content. And they're doing that because of how many Vietnamese are on their platform and how, what percent share of that country and also compared to their overall numbers um, are Vietnamese. And so I think that it is, um, it is not surprising that Facebook has waited this long in order to really make a big move I think, honestly, it was surprising to me that they eventually did take off the Myanmar military from, uh, from Facebook after all this time. But I think that is because of the amount of international attention that's being given to the coup and how the implications of this are honestly more severe than the genocide was, which is awful from a human rights standpoint, but from a political and economic standpoint, makes a lot of sense now. I really think it, that's such an important like set of distinctions, you know, distinguishing the people from their government and the more embedded Facebook is in you know, the internet, as opposed to being a website on the internet that people want to access, the harder it is for Facebook to act without harming you know, and affecting both of those actors. Um, and I think it, the really hard cases involve actions that you can't stop the government doing whatever it's doing or what it wants to do without also blocking um, you know, affecting the people in some way. It's, 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 uh, and I'd be interested to hear what Kira thinks about this analogy, but it's like a bit like the analogy of sanctions. You know, before you could target sanctions at the people around an authoritarian leader, you know, blanket economic sanctions are an extremely effective but incredibly painful, slow way of diminishing their power. But if they're the only way of diminishing their power, then like maybe you should do it. So, yeah, I think that distinction really matters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really great analogy. Yeah, it strikes me that there like there are a couple points then. So so one is one is right, like the Myanmar case is just different, right? Like 
it, it, so it's not just that Facebook is more dependent. And I wouldn't even say dependent, like Myanmar is more profitable for Facebook, right? They're not, they could pull out if they wanted, it would just harm their profits. But that also means that then this new Myanmar military junta is, is also more de- dependent on Facebook in a way that the Australian government was not, right? So like the Australian, you know, if Facebook pulled out of Australia, right, we saw some like public service offices were kind of annoyed because they couldn't, they couldn't access, you know, they couldn't reach certain audiences. But if Facebook pulled out of Myanmar, I mean, that would be a real, a real, real problem. You know, you essentially wouldn't be able to you know, you would lose your communications tool to be able to access the internet. Um, so I think, so I think that dependency question, you know, it's more complicated. And then the second issue is sort of then like, um, like at a legitimacy and incentive issue. So one, it, you know, it would be great if we assumed that Facebook was operating because of human rights principles, because it was thinking, oh, what's the best thing, you know, what whatever their mission is to connect the world, but they're clearly not right. They're they're operating based on profit motive, and even if they were right, then the, even if even if you know Facebook had the best you know morals in the world, right? Then there's a legitimacy question, which is like, is it legitimate for Facebook to be making decisions that are impacting the people of Myanmar, whether or not we agree with that decision or not, right? So regardless of whether Facebook makes the right decision and kicking the military off their platform. It's kind of weird that Mark Zuckerberg has the ability to do that, right? Even if it is helping, quote unquote, like even if it is the right decision. Um, And it really, it just smacks of like colonialism to me, right? Where it's this private corporate power having, you know, really outsized impact on another state, like another people that has no, I mean, Facebook doesn't even have an office in Myanmar, right? Just no regional knowledge whatsoever, and yet is making such consequential decisions. Yeah, I think that there is clearly something objectionable if you're a citizen of Myanmar to that predicament. Um, And, you know, I've been to many countries in which, you know, I've met employees of Google and Facebook and, you know, they have offices, but they're tiny. And, you know, half of the people who work in those offices are like European citizens, a lot of them American citizens who are essentially working out there because like they're going want to live in a different place for a few years. And the the lack of regional or country-based knowledge is shocking. Um, But I don't know if I see it as a legitimacy question. because so to take a you know completely different example, why is it okay that President Biden can you know order troops into you know hack uh, decide to invade to protect the citizens of Myanmar? You know they, he's chosen not to intervene in that case, or the president has chosen not to intervene in that case. But take any uh, situation in which there's conflict, civil conflict in a country. And in the last, you know, 70, 80 years, the president of the United States has had to make a decision about what to do about that case. Now, I think it's a good thing that the president of the United States sees it as being part of their job to think about what to do in that case and to weigh up what to do in that case in all the different, you know, ways that they weigh that up. 
But it's the same kind of legitimacy problem. The fact the president of the United States is elected by the people of America is not any more relevant to their legitimate you know, power, use of power to shape the lives of citizens in Myanmar or India or Australia, for that matter. It's essentially equally arbitrary. It's just his, his power, you know, his authority stems from the people of the United States as opposed to Facebook, which stems from no one. But the authority stemming from the people of the United States is no more legitimate from the perspective of you know, citizens of Myanmar or Australia than, than Mark Zuckerberg, in a way. All of which is not to say that Mark Zuckerberg deciding what to do with Myanmar is just the same as the president of the United States deciding what to do with the military in a case of you know, humanitarian intervention. It's simply to say that it's inevitable that certain kinds of power, I think, carry questions about how that power ought to be used and that those forms of power will never obey neatly state boundaries, never have and never will. And I don't think that it means we should sort of shy away from deciding how someone like Zuckerberg should use that power and the ends for which he or hopefully one day she should use that power, simply because there's something weird about the fact that it comes from other countries. That happens all the time, including in state-based power. No, I take your point. I mean, I think it, I think, you know, there's, there's, I guess there's two distinctions to be made. I do think that there is something fundamentally different about the distinction between public and private power in the way that you've laid out. Like, I do think it makes a difference if you are President Biden versus Zuckerberg. I I think you're right in terms of like all power, like all types of power, whether it is private or public, cross national boundaries. and that power relations are far more trans transnational than the like state system that that we think of but i but i do think that there is a distinction between like a democrat it doesn't even i guess i mean democratically elected is great but right like there is a distinction between a political leader and a private corporation exercising power, even though I do agree with the point that both of them exercise power and that we should think about how they're exercising that power politically. Um, But I also think that then we don't necessarily have to accept that like the structure of Facebook as it's structured continues to exist, right? So So like the question sometimes tends to be focused on like, what did Mark Zuckerberg do? Like, what was his decision and do we agree with it? Rather than like, is the way that decision was structured legitimate? Because there's no reason why with all of the money, billions of dollars that Facebook is making off of Facebook, you know, and the company that it could not have a larger presence, a larger office in every single country in which it operates, in which it employs local employees, in which it, you know, has, you know, even if we, even if we don't require some sort of like local ownership of Facebook, right? It is certainly possible that they could make genuine steps to integrating more local knowledge, right? So, so, I, so, so I take your point, but I, but I still think that there could be different ways that we could could think about it. I want to jump into, and not that I necessarily think all states operate within this framework, but there is at least an expectation of regulation for how action will be wielded, thinking about international law or contracts or treaties between countries that Facebook doesn't have, but there's sort of an expectation that the U.S. does have. And so while I think your point is really interesting as well, that of thinking about what 
sort of power each holds and wields, especially from the perspective of the Myanmar people. I do think that there's an expectation that the way that the U.S. would wield power and help the Myanmar people in this case would be different than the expectation of Facebook. Um, so equating them maybe I, I wouldn't see as, as, um, as fair of a point. Well, I just wanted to say, I, I, I completely agree with that. I think it's a great point. Um, and like what international law does, you know, the standard argument about American power versus international law is that, you know, the United States obeys the responsibility to protect or other forms of international law as and when it suits the United States. But it really matters that the president of the United States has to pay lip service to those rules and norms and laws and has to explain why what they're doing does or does not fit with that and if they deviate from it on what basis and there i think it's completely right that there is no equivalent and the fact that there's no equivalent um in the corporate world of of big tech does really matter um and that's not to say that there should be international rules that specifically state what what you know facebook and google should do in every case of alleged genocide but it does mean that the absence of any rules means that there's no real conversation that we can have. Um, and the only other thing I'd say is that I also think it's completely right, Alina, that it's crazy that we focus our question on, did they do, did, did he, you know, we personalize the power so much. Did he do the right thing in this case? Like that is totally the wrong decision, the conversation to be having. Should he have the power to decide what to do in this case is the right conversation to be having. And I, you know, it's, it's just insane to me that, every single democratic state doesn't establish clear rules that Facebook, Google, and every other infrastructural tech company that operates in their jurisdiction not only has to have a policy team of like four people who go to government lunches and, you know, pretend to talk about policy, they have to have engineering teams who have to build systems in accordance with the norms and the rules and the laws of that jurisdiction. Um, and in that case, you know, the, 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 it might ultimately be Zuckerberg, who those engineering teams answer to, but those engineering teams can be hauled in front of a, you know, legislative committee to answer for how they've built or not built, you know, the systems in a particular kind of way. So, yeah, it's just mad to me that that doesn't already happen. Yeah. And kind of adding on that point really quickly, I think in the first episode of the podcast, we talked about an example in Cambodia in which the engineering team wanted to test out like a new algorithm. Alina, correct me if I'm wrong on this. And then they didn't realize that it was during the Cambodian election. And so it completely messed with like how people were getting information about the candidates. And like, I think in some instances changed what the result was. And that's just a complete lack of competence and understanding what was happening in the country at the time, um, which I think is pretty illustrative of just, I mean, like, as you both have said, the fact that there is no coordination so much between what the engineers are doing and what the policy people are doing, and also that there's not enough tailored understanding in each country of how that country is operating and what's going on there is, is a huge gap. And I think that if, at least for me, like, and as Josh said, if there is something that could be that could come out of this conversation as like a legitimate policy prescription it would be that there needs to be some sort of conversation at an international level of how these companies are going to respond in instances of mass atrocity or in these political crises and what the expectation and regulation of them needs to be because there's not that framework and i think that's why every single time that there's this issue and i think we're seeing it more now than ever before there's just no 
appropriate way to discuss it because there's not the law and there's not the language in order to do so. Mm-hmm. I do think that a lot of that you could get from, I think I think we should clearly have that kind of international discussion. Um, I think, you know, it's likely to take ages, be really slow, be really minimal, but like we should have it and we should start now. I do think that you could get a lot of this if democratic states, and I'm only focusing on democratic states here because it's simpler, um, did some of this themselves. You know, like for, as an example, I was thinking when you were giving the Cambodia example, Kira, um, every example I've ever seen, or one of the many of the examples I've seen of stuff going wrong in Facebook and Google in India, mostly stem from like basic stuff, like they don't really understand what hate speech in Hindi is, for example. Um, because of course, like you can't apply a hate speech classifier trained on examples labeled, you know, in the United States, probably even to England, let alone like in Hindi, um, you need people who label content according to criteria written precisely for Hindi. And that uh, those set of guidelines need to understand all the like millions of nuances in translating tropes and so on. And India could just say that you need to resource, pay, invest, you know, demonstrate that you've invested and hired and trained and so on. Um, the people you need to do that well in this country. Um, and I think lots of countries, even relatively small ones, could do that in ways that they don't currently. And I think, to me, the reason why they don't is that it's not clear to a lot of the world that that Facebook's power isn't really about its policy teams. It's about how they build things like the hate speech, you know, model that's got a lot of attention, particularly in India. And the more they do that, the more I hope that states, particularly democratic states, will say, you need to build this thing in this place because you need to understand this place in order to build it well. Yeah, I mean, India is a really interesting point because that kind of brings us on to like a, a third example, which I think, again, adds a new dimension to this. So so Twitter was ordered to take down accounts that were critical of Prime Minister Modi um, and that were supportive of the farmers protest that's been sweeping the country. Um, and Twitter initially com- complied, but then it put the accounts back up. And, and now, you know, Twitter em- employees in India are being threatened um, with jail time. Um, if if they don't, you know, comply. And Facebook actually had an interesting incident about, I think, about a year ago, um, where they uh they the company said like they were refusing to take down um like content of like there was essentially hate speech of, of a certain hate group because they feared for safe the safety of Facebook employees located in India. Um and there were similar issues too, I think, Josh, back to your point around why don't these governments mandate um that um these these companies have uh, at least a representative if not an office in the country i think turkey has passed a law that requires there to be an employee in 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 the country and there there has been um tension around whether um facebook um will comply so here we have again right so we have i mean so india's a democracy technically right um it it's it's asking an American private corporation to comply with what the you know what I guess Twitter essentially sees as censorship. I mean, so, th- so that's it. So this is this is a really tough question because in many ways these you know in a sense Twitter is doing what we have prescribed. We have said 
have an office on the ground, um, have local knowledge, uh, you know, have a stake in the government and comply with what the government says. And yet it still doesn't seem quite right. Yeah, I, I mean, India is a really, really interesting case, in part because of the kind of political structure that it is. It's interesting that you said, I think you said kind of a democracy or just about a democracy or something like that. And that's like the standard, you know, way of thinking about India. And I think that like the way I think about India is that India is definitely a democracy. It's just not always a liberal democracy and in some ways never, you know, has been a liberal democracy. And that makes the question of what actually grounds Facebook's obligation to do what a government says, what really is that? Is it that it's respecting, that government is respecting a set of like fixed rights and rules and obligations about how you should treat citizens that are sort of written in stone or, you know, written in the UN Declaration of Human Rights or whatever it might be? Or is it that the authority of that government flows from the fact that it's elected by the people? If it's the former, then you might do, if you're Facebook or Twitter, what the Indian government says on a case-by-case basis by basically judging whether or not you think you being Facebook or Twitter think that those rules, you know, fit and respect those liberal principles of rights and obligations. If you think that it's about the authority flowing from the people, then you should do what this BJP-led government tells you to do because it's pretty clearly legitimately democratically elected. Um, I think what makes it even harder about the Facebook case is that my understanding of the case is that Facebook has refused to take down the hate speech of a Hindu nationalist group. So the way that you'd think that that case would be structured would that be the Hindu nationalist party would be telling Facebook not to take down the hate speech of the Hindu nationalist group and Facebook would be saying no no we're going to take it down and then they'd be getting kicked back you know from the government they'd be disagreeing in that way that's not actually the structure of the case Facebook are refusing to take down that case um that uh group because they're afraid of backlash from the agents of the group who are in Facebook um who are in India sorry so To me, that's kind of a slightly strange response because it's essentially saying we're afraid to act against this bunch of vigilantes because these vigilantes might harm us. Well, you live in a state that has a legal system and police and prisons and the rule of law. Now, they might be afraid that the BJP, BJP government wouldn't protect them. But that's getting pretty far into the weeds of if, buts and maybes, in, in my view. I just want to push back on that that framing though, Josh, right? Because what you're saying is, well, two things. One, you're saying that the uh, like multinational corporations should choose to abide by the laws of states it deems legitimate by by virtue of being liberal democracies. One, which is which is one thing, but two, also there's then an assumption that Facebook or whatever the American company is is making a decision based on considerations such as is this a legitimate state and is it upholding human rights norms, which I don't think they are, right? Which is why, like when Kira, you know, brought up the example of of Vietnam, right? Like 
they are complying with a lot of authoritarian demands for profit, right? And and they're not making a legitimacy, you know, they're not, I don't think Facebook sitting there being like, well, we've been asked to take down some accounts by India, but is this from the people or is this from, you know, that like they're asking like, okay, what's the coverage of this going to be? How is this going to affect our profit margins? So I guess then like the, then like the two questions is like, is, 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 first of all, like, does making a distinction about like what governments a corporation has to apply, like comply with based on something that we are, you know, determining from our own value, you know, our own positionality and perspective as like, oh, Americans or British people, right? Like liberal democracy is the best. Is that a problem? And then two, if even if we do acknowledge that, then is that even what's actually happening? Just a small thing, which is that to be clear, I really do not think that is how in practice any tech company is actually making decisions. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There's no way that I think Facebook, Google, Twitter, you name it, uh, are making decisions about where and and how to operate based on a principled judgment about the, you know, subtle distinction between liberalism and democracy as a basis for engaging with the state. (laughs) Yeah. For sure, no. Um, It's just that the example of India is interesting because it is a democracy and it's probably not a liberal democracy. And then, you know, we have to reach a view about how they should act in that case. And I think, I do think that to, to your number one question, to me, that is a good basis for them to decide how to act, even if that's not how they in practice decide how to act. Um, and I kind of can't think about, or, or I can't imagine any other ways to make decisions about different cases other than the legitimacy of the government. I think there's a few questions that are going in my mind. The first is the distinction between Twitter and Facebook as companies. Um, And I think really illustrated over the summer in the response that Twitter and Facebook had to Trump, um, and especially in light of the Black Lives Matter movement. And we sort of saw the nature of both companies as being really different. So when I hear the India example, it's surprising to me that they would not sort of have more of an opinion, not that I think that they should, but I think that the way in which a case like that is regulated compared to what we saw in the Black Lives Matter movement or in the aftermath was interesting. And I'm not, I don't know enough about the India case to really have a hard like thought about that, but I just think that the way that Facebook and Twitter run domestic policy issues compared to foreign policy issues is different. I think that their foreign policy is less informed, which makes sense, but maybe it's because they realize they're not going to get the same level of criticism from people that can actually do something to them, i.e. the U.S. government. And I think that that's kind of problematic and sort of for me thinks about like, what should the U.S. government now do if should they have a stake in what these countries are doing overseas, given that these are U.S. companies? And if so, does it have to be in alignment with U.S. foreign policy? Does it not? Um, I think the idea that it should comply with countries' laws is interesting because Obviously, they can't be the gatekeeper here. But then we think about the Myanmar case again. Aung San Suu Kyi was the de facto leader during the genocide. Now that she's gone, we realize, okay, she was actually probably more legitimate than what replaced them. But does that mean that Facebook then shouldn't have taken down the military's accounts in 2017, that they should have... Obviously, like there is a there is a bound here. If it's genocide, then that should overrule whatever 
principle of the government, but who gets to draw those distinctions? And I guess third is that a lot of these countries, especially in Southeast Asia, have passed a lot of these draconian media laws, media censorship laws. Uh, Malaysia just passed one a few weeks ago in light of um, spreading of misinformation because of COVID-19. These are in Indonesia with their ITE law. Um, Thailand, I think, has some laws. So we have a lot of these laws that a lot of rights groups think are really problematic when it comes to censoring online content. And it's should these companies not comply with it because it's the law, even though it's bad. And like, where do you draw those lines, even if they are liberal democracies, but just do things or like have these media laws that are pretty draconian? Yeah, I think the question of how to make principled distinctions between the laws produced by the governments of different states is in some ways the central question of, of what we've been talking about and who should get to make those decisions and on what basis they should make those decisions. I think that in some ways, the question is, it's one of those questions that's sort of quite, it's a lot easier to pose than it is to answer, um, not least because any of the ways we might want to be able to answer it, so many of the ways we might want to be able to answer it are just not possible. Um, so, you know, for example, it should be a council of nations who've agreed a treaty who decide who decides whether or not Facebook and Google and other big tech companies should obey the laws of a particular state and, you know, on what basis they should make that decision. Basically, Facebook and Google should refer to a treaty that has been signed. Um, and in which there's some sort of mechanism for dispute re resolution and so on and so forth, like we do trade or like we do war crimes and other areas of international law and economics. The problem is that that doesn't exist. And I just don't think we're in a world in the foreseeable future in which tech regulation is high on the geopolitical priorities of like anyone, really. You know, sometimes I think maybe there's a what is that? A, a D10, have you heard that? I think it's D20. like bigger. Yeah, D20, yeah. that's it. Yeah. D20. yeah, that's right. And um, so that's a, that's a place that something like this might come from because what's the D24? Well, it can make principles, rules about how tech companies should interact with foreign governments, perhaps. But, but really, like, we need to decide what we think about how tech companies should exercise their power in relation to governments without that kind of stuff. And yeah. to me, there's just no way of thinking about that without trying to find some underlying principle that at least they should pay lip service to. Um, and that principle, I think, just has to be something to do with the authority of the government. And you know, it is the case that there are variations in how liberal democracies are. Like I think Kira mentioned the example of Singapore. Um, but there are some East Asian democracies that have passed speech laws that we would think are uncomfortable or that we are uncomfortable with. I don't think the fact that we're uncomfortable with them is a good enough reason not for Facebook and Google and Twitter and so on not to obey them. So, yeah, I think that there is no other way that I can think of to make distinctions between what governments' laws tech companies should respect other than where the authority of that government comes from. And that will be dissatisfying and there will always be hard cases. That's how we've evaluated the exercise of different kinds of power with global reach for a long time. And I think it's a, you know, the only and probably the best way to proceed at this point without 
international regulation? Well, so I have a couple of thoughts. The first is that I'm skeptical of the D20 or like even the liberal democracy model of thinking of only states with liberal democracies as, as being legitimate for a couple of reasons. One is that even within, even if we were able to come up with some distinction for what is a liberal democracy, that there are even that the, the questions that we would want answers or I think you said guidelines or treaties on are even contested within those spaces. So thinking about the distinctions between like the way U.S. You know, so Facebook famously has censored like nudity, right? Where if you like, I talk to my European friends and they're like, "That's weird. Why did you censor that?" And you're like, "It's American thing." Um, so, so the, those sorts of things are still even like those things are even contested. Secondly, and people have said, you know, there's a U.S. model, there's an EU model, and there's a China model. And I actually think that the US and the China model are a lot more similar than we in quote unquote Western nations would be comfortable thinking about, right? So if you think about like how the the relationship between the US state and corporations, I mean, the government is just very happy to buy surveillance data from, from these corporations and use it within their course of apparatuses of policing. So we see like police department, even not at the, just the federal level, we see, you know, with NSA and PRISM and all this stuff, right? We see police departments across the country use this data um, and it's, right, it's gonna be predominantly against like black, brown, minorities, um, communities, immigration, immigration and enforcement agencies. Um, I, I just, I think if you're thinking about this, if you want like a principled distinction, if, if you're thinking about this from what I would call a human rights perspective, that centering a liberal democratic state is still going to be problematic, even if it doesn't feel as problematic as being in a, in a, in a, in a situation like authoritarian China, where, you know, it seems really obvious that the state is, is, is partnering and is incentivized in this way to, to um, quash dissent. No, I think, I think, I think it's a good point that, and I think that it's definitely right that the liberal democracy category, and for what it's worth, I think the democracy bit of that is more important than the liberal bit of that, um, especially outside of Europe and the United States. But um, and so I think it's 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 clearly the case that the liberal democracy piece is you know maybe necessary but not sufficient, and maybe it's not even necessary. Maybe just in some cases it's sufficient, but it's not always necessary. To gobble some words together that I think mean something, <laughs> um, but I think that in some ways you can flip it on its head. Like, okay, so there are problematic relationships between the American state. Um, and corporations now, and they have been for most of American history. And those problems are exacerbated by data and the power that prediction gives you to control and manipulate and, you know, particularly enforce structures of systemic racism. But the difference between Facebook and uh, America and China is that the United States has an executive, a judiciary, and a legislature. And it has a federal government and states. And, you know, these things are sort of obvious and to some extent, like, sort of tedious. But they really do matter because there will be a state who bans facial recognition. And when one state 
state bans special recognition. Other states think, hmm, maybe I should do that too. Or they think, no, I'm definitely not going to do that. And if you don't like special recognition, you can move to states that do it. Now, there are a zillion problems with all of that playing out in practice. Um, but it really does matter that a Supreme Court can say no to something that you know Congress or the executive do. Um, there just is not that equivalent in China. And that really does curb at crucial moments of you know, state-level trajectory the course and exercise of state power. Um, and I think sometimes we forget that. We you know, sort of focus on all the problems and the really deep structural endemic uh, relationships between corporate and state power and, to some extent, the corruption of both of those things. And we forget that we do have a political system that is built to correct those things. And that really does matter. And you can sort of flip the question around on its head and say, okay, how else should they do it? I mean, yeah, what do you think? So suppose yeah. we chuck out the liberal democracy category, what else should they be thinking about? I mean, I think, I think this is just to clarify, like this is not in any way to equate, equate like authoritarian China, like ongoing genocide of, you know, Uyghurs, you know, all these things with the US system. It's just to draw um, more attention to the fact that I think that what we're really talking about is a nexus between corporate power, state power, and what we could call people, right? Or citizens, or you know, however you want to define that. And that often in our conversations around corporate, especially technology corporations, that nexus is very confused. And so we think about authoritarian Facebook, or we think about authoritarian state, or we think about, ooh, like liberating Facebook in authoritarian state, you know, and that to, to me, it seems that both the corporation and the state operate a type of coercive power over people and that, but they reinforce each other in different ways. And that and as we've seen through this conversation, it's very, very difficult to untangle where the power is coming from and who's coercing who and and who's pushing it and and who's really the liberator or you know quote unquote liberator and, and who's the coercer and repressor and that all these systems are um are interacting with each other and as as we sort of seen in this conversation it's very very hard to say okay well we should take the state the state is the thing that we think is the most legitimate we should listen to australia because it's the state and it, you know, against Facebook with his illegitimate, then it's, then it's like, okay, well, then there's a state that's authoritarian. Uh, actually, we should take the corporation as, as legit, you know, you know, and that's not even to add, you know, the like kind of global power dynamics between the, like the global North and the global South and the histories of colonialization and the way that private and state power have interacted. And as you kind of bring up how, you know, humanitarian intervention, you know, is often packaged, you know, repackaged or goes hand in hand, especially after like the Iraq war with a sort of Western imperialism or, or a Western or, or American, um, you know, domination, you know, like there's a, there's a power dynamic there, right? So it just seems that it's very, very complicated to try to find which is the actor and what are the principles and what's what's the right way to do this, even if you accept 
that like Facebook has too much power. Okay? I guess the other point is that we have been thinking very, very globally. Um, and, and you kind of brought that up with this ideas around treaties or the UN or the D20. But I think the other way we can go is go local and to try to think about um, even as these larger global power dynamics play out, how do you structure um, both like the technology and the power such that it does empower uh, at a very local level to, to grapple with the exact questions that, that we've been talking about. Thanks so much again to Josh and Kira for coming back to talk with us on the Anti-Dystopians. As usual, all of the articles or books that Josh, Kira, and I mentioned will be available in our show's show notes, so be sure to check them out. You can also sign up for the Anti-Dystopians email newsletter to get these links and reminders about each episode sent directly to your inbox. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, be sure to subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts.